welcome, dear listener. This is the very first of a series of Rogue Mail podcasts. The first one is entitled Void Mortgages, the most treacherous scam of all. In this podcast, I'm going to be taking the listener through the various slates of hand and tricks that are at play during the formation of what is known to millions of people on these lands as a mortgage. This account is um, is to be read also on uh, the website, which is roguemail.org. And without further ado, let's get cracking. Um, so this account includes details of how I was scammed by a bankster and a duplicitous solicitor into entering a criminal agreement and therefore a void mortgage with a collective of racketeers known as the Bradford and Bingley, who followed a centuries-old blueprint by which they extorted thousands of pounds from me and not content with that, when I stopped paying into the protection racket back in January 2009, eventually stole all I had and evicted me on the street with the unlawful assistance of Nottinghamshire Police Force. The criminal banksters pretended they had loaned me real monies of exchange with which to buy a home. In order to deceive me into believing it was a valid mortgage, they employed a solicitor to assist them in their racketeering. Little did I know that the man acting as my solicitor, the conveyancing solicitor, was conflicted in his interests, for he was simultaneously representing my interests and those of the banksters for the matter, and the research that I and notable others, without limitation that includes Michael of Benicia of selfrealisation.com and Timothy Madden, who put out a researcher and forensic uh, analyst who put out a paper entitled It's Criminal by Design. So, you know, much much kudos to those and all the others, including Cy Spaniard, who have, for the last few years at least, been taking head-on and tackling what is, I believe, to be one of the most pernicious swindles ever perpetrated on the peoples of planet Earth. So it turned out that when you enter, when one enters into a, uh, a mortgage, one is in fact entering into a, an iniquitous game of poker in which the mortgagor is placing not only his chips on the rigged table but also his very home. The stakes are indeed as high as that, and the casino wins 100% every time because it knows that no matter how great the punter's hand, he will fold in the face of the house's tried and tested method of coercion. After all, who wants to take the gamble that he will be thrown out of his house? You may or may not be surprised to hear, but I decided to take that gamble as soon as I discovered that the bank had in fact loaned me nothing and that the whole thing was created as a consequence of a negotiable instrument known as a deed of mortgage, which I was induced into signing and conveying the cross to the banker, who, who then treated it as a gift and made a deposit of it. The first part is entitled False Friends, a background to the formation of the scam. Back in 1994, I was working as a teacher. I was at that time renting a, a room in a friend's house. When that friend returned from a two-year break in Japan, I was in need of a place to live. So I'd saved up three and a half grand 
for a deposit on a home and I was looking for a house to buy and in May, June of that year, I found one that suited my requirements and I decided that the next stage was for me to enter into what I hoped, hoped and, and, and trusted would be a lawful agreement for a mortgage so I could buy the house. Now, the origins of the mortgage, which literally translates as dead pledge, go back at least to William the Bastard, also known as William the Conqueror. In 1066, he brought with him the Jews of Europe, who had a refined system of commercial law, their own form of commerce and a system of rules to facilitate and govern it. These rules made their way into the developing structure of English law, Several elements of historical Jewish legal practice have been integrated into the English legal system. Notable among these is the written credit agreement, Shita or Star, as it appears in English documents. The basis of the Shita or Jewish gauge was a lien or a charge on all property. That quotation is from the Shita's effect on English law and the link is available on the website. Around that time, I had two friends who I trusted and reasonably believed would be able to help me in the formation of a lawful loan. One of them, Phil, I'd known since 1982 when I first met him in uh, the town of Huddersfield when he was beginning a degree in geography and I was a sixth form in the same town. Now, in 1994, Phil was the bank manager of a branch of the Bradford and Bingley in Mansfield. The second friend who I asked for assistance, and I'd known him since 1988, worked as a conveyancing solicitor with expertise in, in conveyancing of property, which necessarily included some expertise in mortgage matters, or at least that was the impression he gave me. Both of them agreed they had the ability to help me in the formation of a valid mortgage agreement by which I could become the equitable owner of the property with the ownership of that property being recorded at the land registry. Now, these guys were doubly trusted, first of all as friends, but also um, trusted to provide me with what I would expect to have been valid and lawful services. Unfortunately, this trust was misplaced, as both were in fact engaging in a duplicitous game in which they would take substantial commissions from the Bradford and Bingley on the procurement of the bogus deed of mortgage and myself into a criminal racket of global proportions. The arrangement of the mortgage with Phil, the bank manager, went as smoothly as he had assured me it would. An application was filled in under his attendance. Significantly, at no point did Phil or any official at the Bradford and Bingley sign any documentation to validate the agreement which is a requirement at law. Ed, the solicitor, meanwhile, was employed to provide me with care and attendance throughout in order to explain any and all of the legal issues commensurate with the formation of a lawful mortgage. However, as it turned out, both were operating fraudulently in that they deliberately omitted to disclose to me the full facts of the matter. In essence, it amounted to this. I would be duped into unknowingly gifting the Bradford and Bingley a valuable financial instrument, also known as a negotiable instrument. This security, in the form of the deed of mortgage, 
would be procured by the bank for the bank by Ed, the solicitor, who in what was a clear and admitted conflict of interest was also under contractual obligation to the bank and due to receive a commission for his role in the scam. This fact was not disclosed to me until I received an email from Ed in April 2013, almost 19 years later. The deed of mortgage, albeit a fraudulent document, was indeed a valuable security. Um, possibly also known as a promissory note, which in the words of Lord Denning was as good as cash. This, with the solicitor's assistance, was procured for the bank from me and deposited as an asset at the bank. And in fact, this is what is happening with all loans. Any loan from a bank is in fact an asset and it is recorded on their books as such. And in effect, this means, of course, that the reality, which is as is often the way in these matters, is 180 degrees from the way it's presented to the dumbed-down populations. For anyone who has signed a loan agreement, including any and all mortgages, is the creditor of the bank, not the debtor. Now, quite how this manifested will be familiar to anyone who has at any time entered into a mortgage agreement. It's a fake debt-based usury system of oppression. Because in effect, and in reality, nobody owes the banks as much as a penny. And for that reason, I regard it as a treacherous enslavement, insofar as it is carried out on behalf of a shiftless ruling aristocracy whose overarching control is in the bloody hands of the House of Rothschild and its Zionist banking minions, an elite ruling class that has committed genocide against all the peoples of the earth and will continue to do so, until the people deem it otherwise and stop going along with it. The next section is entitled Smoke and Mirrors, Financial and Legal Conjury. You'll see on the slide here a photograph of Phil, who was the bank manager, stroke magician, stroke mortgage broker at the time of the formation of the mortgage. Now, that picture was taken a few years ago at a sports club casino night. And as is so often the case, it's worth a thousand words in that it serves to illustrate how the mortgage scam operates by way of a, uh, various slates of hand and conjury, all of which operate simultaneously upon the duped punter, who through these means becomes debtor to the bank, who as a matter of accounting fact never loaned him any monies at all. We're now going to focus on the four primary devices that were deployed by the bank and the abject failure of Ed, the solicitor, to provide me with a genuine level of service. In fact, remember, I was paying him for his knowledge and his expertise. The first device is what Tim Madden identifies as a false receipt and false declaration of ownership. Now, if you look at the slide here, you'll see an image of a redacted image of the deed of mortgage, which was signed by me on order around the 28th of July 1994. Keep that date in mind because it is significant. Now, as I stated previously, this system of control was founded in ancient Babylon and engineered into the Jewish Shittah and has morphed down the centuries into a tool of deception and enslavement designed to serve the interests of those moneylenders who operate 
under a tyrannical system of global Rothschild Zionist banking practices. There are some key points for us to look at, and if you check out the arrows there, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. The first arrow at the top is the date, which was inserted by Ed in his own handwriting after I'd signed the mortgage deed. That in itself is a palpable act of forgery because no legal document can have anything inserted into it after it has been signed, after it's been executed and witnessed by the signator, the signatory of it, the one who signs it. Now, you'll also see at paragraph one, there are two arrows pointing out there the fact that it's a false declaration. First of all, I was certainly not the borrower, nor was I the beneficial owner at the moment of execution. In other words, this is a false declaration. This is the scam upon which the whole edifice of deceit is built and the identification immediately invalidates the deed and the mortgage. To look at it closely, and indeed I would encourage anyone to, if they've got a, a deed of mortgage, to have a look at their own copy as well, to see the facts for oneself. The deed is fraudulent on its face. This fact alone is sufficient to make it void. As you can see, it falsely states, 1. The borrower as beneficial owner hereby charges the property by way of legal mortgage with payment of all monies payable by the borrower to the lender as more particularly detailed in the mortgage conditions and 2. The performance of the borrower of all the borrower's other obligations under this mortgage. And in that sense, the deed of mortgage was operating as a false receipt, as it was signed and delivered by me around two weeks predating the notice of completion of advance, which itself was dated the 15th of August 1994. Now, just pause to think about that, because when you begin to grasp it, you will see that it is in fact a breathtakingly audacious trick. And if we were to reverse the roles, it would be the equivalent of one going into the bank and saying to a man the manager of the bank okay mr bank manager sometime within the next three weeks i'm going to make a deposit into the bank of one million pounds so you now agree you owe me a million quid could you please sign this receipt no no don't worry about a written agreement that's not necessary we're not going to enter into any two-party agreement here and also, I'd like to take note that I'm reserving the right not to make the deposit. Oh, and one further thing, I may change the agreement at any time. And don't bother to date it, Mr. Manager. I'll fill that in later. As and when the deed of mortgage was signed and delivered to Ed, the solicitor, the sworn statement was objectively false. I was the nominal borrower, I was the name borrower only. I wanted the loan so that I could first become the beneficial owner of the property and then register that ownership with the land registry. And yet, at the moment of signing, I had not received a single penny from the Bradford and Bingley. And of course, neither was I the beneficial owner at the time of the execution, as I didn't even move into the house until the end of August 1994. Now, it's important that people don't think this is a mere technicality because 
that is in fact what the legal professional will try and insist. Oh, don't worry about that, you got the house after all, didn't you? It's, a, it's not a mere technicality because the bank then placed essential and material reliance on the mortgage receipt clause in its sourcing, in other words the conversion and creation of the funds for the purported loan. And as stated by Tim Madden in its Criminal by Design, time is of the essence and if a writing as a legal document is a false document as and when nominally executed, then no subsequent treatment can cure that defect between the parties. Now, let's just focus on what was going on with the solicitor here. For reasons that will become all too apparent, Ed omitted to advise me of this blatant fact, and thus, under his purported attendance and care, he counselled, conned me into executing a false instrument, thereby entering a fraudulent agreement which had the ultimate consequence, some 16 years later, of me suffering real property loss homelessness and being left without legal recourse. The following is taken directly from the deed of mortgage as gifted to the Bradford and Bingley. Note, at the time of the execution by me, the nominal borrower, not so much as a penny had been received and I didn't expect to receive the advance for a number of weeks. The credit was, the credit was subsequently purportedly advanced around two weeks later after I had carried out Ed's instruction to sign, swear and deliver to him Bradford and Bingley's standard deed of mortgage. Tim Madden explains the false receipt device thus, quote, Again, time was of the essence and the statement, stroke document, was plainly false as and when autographed and delivered in fact. Further, such is not a side issue. Evidencing the fact of executor consideration, in other words a receipt, is the primary and stated purpose of the writing itself. End quote. It's to be noted that not only was the receipt clause categorically false as and when the security was executed and delivered, but the Bradford and Bingley also flagrantly misrepresented the facts about the substance of the thing itself. Even the advance was simply credit that was eventually flipped back, if you like, from the deposit of the valuable security that I had unknowingly gifted to the bank. And that was all it ever was, credit. And as many of you will know, credit is not lawful money of the UK, but instead operates as a non-legal tender substitute for currency, which ipso facto does not have the status of legal tender. It stands to reason, therefore, that any subsequent dealing of any kind, including the receipt of any and all payments under this so-called loan and through the false instrument, was automatically an offence against the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, brackets, laundering proceeds of crime, which states, quote, Money laundering is defined as an act which constitutes an offence under section 327, 328 and 329 or a conspiracy or attempt to commit such an offence. Money laundering includes counselling, aiding or abetting or procuring. As my solicitor, he clearly provided me with counselling and he was also complicit in the aiding or abetting and the procurement of that 
deed of mortgage for and on behalf of the bank. Now, the significance of this may take a while to take root in the reader's mind because only when he thinks it through and truly grasps it will he come to the enormous realisation that it appears that any lawyer in the jurisdiction known as the United Kingdom and elsewhere around the world who, who is or has been complicit in the procurement of a false instrument from his client in the form of a fraudulent valuable security stroke asset which is used for the unjust enrichment and unfair advantage of the other party over the one to whom he has a primary duty of care, is by definition complicit in money laundering. And you'll see there an image of Ed. That's taken from his company's website. Now, we now move on to device B, which is fictitious or illusory consideration. The bank loans you nothing. For a, part, for a contract to be valid, an agreement to be valid, there has to be equal consideration by both parties. In my case, my consideration was my promise to pay. The bank's fake consideration was a loan of monies. I say it was fake because, as many of you will be aware, no bank has the money that it purports to be loaning to us. This is why the um, the, low, the run on the banks, you know, banks do not have enough cash in reserve to pay out all their customers who say all the customers demanded their monies back on a particular day. They simply couldn't facilitate that because they haven't got all the money. They haven't got the money. They don't have deposits of that size. In common with the overwhelming majority of mortgages in Britain, the Bradford and Bingley use the device of fictitious or illusory consideration, whereby the deed of mortgage stated that I, as the nominal borrower, transferred ownership of the mortgage to the Bradford and Bingley, ownership of the mortgage on a property that wasn't even mine at the time I signed the mortgage deed, remember, in exchange for their bare agreement to make a loan or advance. As succinctly expressed by Tim Madden, quote, it is illegal and contrary to GAAP, which is generally accepted accounting principles, for a bank or any lender or creditor to hold out its agreement to loan as a separate or distinct consideration or service from the loan itself. This illusory consideration is evidenced by the Bradford and Bingley's unsigned offer of mortgage advance dated the 14th of June. Said offer deliberately and ambiguously stated that, quote, your application for a mortgage advance has been approved upon the terms of this offer of advance, which includes the special conditions and additional terms over leaf. Now, when we look at the legal definition of the word include, which means to the exclusion of everything else, the sleight of hand being used here becomes transparently clear. The only offered consideration by the Bradford and Bingley was its ambivalent and conditional agreement has been approved, the loan had, the advance has been approved, to make the advance upon the terms of its offer of advance, which was, in deliberately misleading legal terminology, merely the special conditions and additional terms. This is what we call legalese, and it's a deliberately ambiguous use of language designed only for the purposes of entrapment. 
Therefore, there was literally nothing being offered by the bank rather than this illusion of an advance. In other words, its consideration was entirely fictitious, and the ambiguous wording of the offer of advance was knowingly used in order to conceal this fact. In the simplest and starkest of terms, therefore, they were offering fuck all, thanks to the deliberately misleading and fraudulent wording of said offer. The state of consideration in the ambivalent form of the offer of mortgage advance contained in Exhibit D was thus deliberately designed to deceive and specifically illegal in the case of the Bradford and Bingley, and in fact all banks. And as further stated by Tim Madden, quote, the bank is in the business of knowing it and its executive officers must swear under oath and penalty of perjury that it knows it under the bank's annual report. Further, no borrower has the capacity to allow or to agree to allow a bank or anyone else to violate the many and varied laws against the practice. Ed, the solicitor, patently and deliberately failed in his so-called expert capacity to advise me of this illegal practice. The reason for that is because he was simultaneously representing the bank's interests as well as mine and in fact they were paying him for his part in the deception. To use the analogy of um, a casino, if Phil, the manager, was the boss of the casino, Ed was the equivalent of the dealer at the rigged poker table, with me, the sucker who had pulled up a stool to play the game. Now, as as anyone's been as anyone will know, a croupier's loyalty is always going to be to the one who pays him, the one who pays him the most. And that is precisely how all solicitors are compromised when they engage in this fraudulent game of poker. They're dealing the cards, but their housemaster is the bankster. Therefore, my signature on the false deed of mortgage was attained by means of fraudulent inducement in the shape of the fictitious or illusory consideration of the Bradford and Bingley. I thought I was getting a loan. I was tricked into believing that I was getting a loan. In fact, all I was getting was what they called an advance, which included, remember that is to the exclusion of everything else, the terms and conditions of the mortgage. That's their, that's their state of consideration. All they're offering me is the terms and conditions of the mortgage. So in the simplest of terms, I would somehow transfer ownership of, a, of the mortgage on a property that I wasn't in possession of at the time to the bank in exchange only for the bank's ambivalent agreement to make an advance which included by definition only the terms and conditions. All the while, this was carried out under the counsel of my, at the time, trusted friend and solicitor. Therefore, I found myself the victim of what is known as a nudum pactum, or a naked contract. And this next section is entitled, The Emperor is Naked. So in other words, under his self-acknowledged professional care and attendance, that's what I paid him for, remember, I was deliberately misadvised by the solicitor to sign a false receipt, which was in and of itself an acknowledgement of a non-existent debt or monies that I had not received at the time of the execution and delivery of the deed. This 
renders it an ultra-virus contract, and void ab initio, which means void right from the very beginning. Exhibit 3 is the instruction from Ed to sign the fraudulent deed of mortgage, without even so much as a final sum being acknowledged. Now, it's also significant, as I'll just, I'll just go back to the original point, that Ed subsequently committed an act of forgery when he inserted the date in his own handwriting on the deed. Because in order for that deed to be valid, it has to be complete at the moment of execution. To insert something afterwards, whether that be a date or whether that be the terms and conditions, voids it. Because how can you be sure that the legal document is true and complete if people are going to be inserting additional terms and conditions or they're even going to be inserting a date after the deed had actually been executed by myself, been, been signed by myself. The significance also of that document dated the, with his instruction, dated the 28th of July, as you can see, is it's got his handwriting at the bottom there, which um, proves that he was the one that entered the date, that committed the acts of forgery, when he entered the date on the mortgage deed. So, as incredible as it may seem to the listener, Bradford and Bingley's only consideration was its ambivalent agreement to make the advance, which was, to the exclusion of anything else, the terms and conditions. And thus, it was all a complete and utter illusion. I'll just pause there to allow the listener to mull that one over, because it really is quite a loathsome scam when you, when you look into it, you look at the actual facts of the matter. The bankster and the solicitor are literally taking every mortgage off for a total mug and metaphorically laughing <clears throat> in his gormless face. And all the while, behind the scenes, they're, cre they're creaming off commission from the septic teat of the banker's casino of treachery. So as a matter of fact, aside from the administrative cost of the bank, which would have been a tiny fraction of the value, the short and long term, or the security they received. The only consideration of any substantive value was the executed deed of mortgage. Remember, that's a negotiable instrument. It's a valuable asset because the mortgagor is given his pledge, his dead pledge, to pay back, to pay back, to pay the bank the monies that it's claiming duplicitously to, duplicitously to have loaned him. In fact, it did no such thing. Plus, compound interest over a period of 25 years. It's a very, very valuable asset to the bank, and that gets deposited into a special account and recorded as such on its annual report covering the relevant financial year. Another point is that this is then traded by the bank. It's um, what they call securitized through a special purpose vehicle. In other words, they, they sell it on. Uh, and it effectively means that the the value of the, in fact, it's probably, it's, a, it's more than this, but in the basic, in, uh, as at very least, three times the value of the purported loan. And this is, of course, without taking into consideration the, the, the criminality behind the fixing of the interest rates through, through LIBOR, which is the London... Interbank offered rate. 
the upshot of this was that all the while under Ed's trusted counselling, I had fallen prey to the cynically exploitative global racketeering practice called a mortgage, whereby the bank induced me by means of its fake, its phony, its chimerical consideration into executing and delivering upon the instruction of Ed, my solicitor, a highly prized security which was then treated as a gift and deposited as an entry on the bank's books, which the bank, with the bank bringing only illusory consideration to the, to the contract. Now let's just touch on the, um, the next aspect, which is in fact the, the securitization. The highly priced security could then be assigned or sold on to any of its offshore trusts and or special purpose vehicles and from there it gets bundled up with others to be further sold to investors as mortgage-backed securities. On the basis that I, the poor sucker who had signed it, had in good faith pledged to promised to pay the monthly amounts of my sweat equity in monies of exchange at a variable and criminally fixed interest rate for the next 25 years. The monies of exchange. I had to go out and what, what that means is I had to go out and earn those monies through my own sweat equity to pay the bank when the bank had actually loaned me nothing. Can we begin to see the sheer malevolence at play here, the sheer trickery of it all? All of which gives rise to the question, why would any, uh, quote, quote, why would any competent lawyer solicit or even allow his client and friend to sign documents that stated a fictitious and plainly illegal consideration from the other party, which is contrary to the basic laws of accounting? The answer, of course, is that Ed's care and attendance upon me to explain, in order to explain all documentation, was utterly fraudulent because at best he simply didn't have the required depth of professional knowledge to provide the reasonably expected levels of proficiency that I was paying him for. And at worst, he was being paid a commission by the bankster for the procurement of the highly prized instrument known as the deed of mortgage. Now we're on to device C and you'll see I've got a mouse trap there with a dollar bill, which I think again provides us with uh, a more than adequate visual representation of device C, which is the bait and switch, uh, a term used for a, a con in which the punter gets baited in and then the uh, it all gets switched round. So effectively, what's going on here is that I go into I go into as a creditor I go in as the creditor of the bank and end up leaving the deal as the debtor for the bank, having gifted them the valuable negotiable instrument known as the deed of mortgage. How did that happen? How did it happen? Well, it happened via the, the trickery of the whole system known as the mortgage. Remember, we had the offer of the advance, which was masquerading as a genuine loan. Quote, your application for a mortgage advance has been approved upon the terms of this offer of advance, which includes the special conditions and additional terms of relief. That was negated in and of itself by the disclaimer, which states, quote, 
the society reserves the right not to proceed with the advance or to modify these terms at any time before the advance has been made. And the further disclaimer in the deed of mortgage, which states, this mortgage secures further advances, but the lender is not obliged to make any. Now, there's a plethora of statutory regulations which apply to this. Without limitation, they are the uh, Forgery and Counterfeiting Act 1981, Theft Act 1968, Unfair Terms and Consumer Contract Regulations 1999, Proceeds of Crime Act 2003, the Companies Act 2005, the Fraud Act 2006, and or the UK YAP Regulation. The presence of the disclaimer that the bank was not bound to make an advance switched the express prior statement, your application for a mortgage advance has been approved upon the terms of this offer advance in and of itself into a false pretense, false representation. So the bait, which is the offer to advance, is then switched into a no obligation to advance. So even though you sign the deed, the bank's stating it could it reserves the right at any point to withdraw, which would potentially leave you with having put a charge on another property that wasn't yours, but being liable to pay back on that charge. This this is a criminal offence, in fact, because what's happening here is that um, well, it's fraud. It's, in the simplest of terms, we're dealing with fraud. In the present, in this case, the Bradford and Bingley deceptively obtained possession and ownership of the valuable security of the deed of mortgage by fraud or false pretense and with the assistance of Ed, the solicitor. So the bank, as Tim's, Tim Madden substantiates, quote, the bank appears to legally obtain possession and ownership of the money stroke asset stroke security while incurring no liability in law because of the disclaimer. That's the switch. It therefore stands as a fact that the mortgage was on its face of fraud and no amount of obfuscation by way of fallacious appeal to common practice can hide that fact. Quite why and how Ed failed to draw that to my attention is only now too obvious. Remember, I was the one who brought the only thing of equitable substance to the transaction, which was the promise, the pledge of my future income over 25 years, Yet he, sorry, like, yet I, like every other mortgagor to whom the same applies, I walked away from the deal as the legal debtor of the Bradford and Bingley. How the feck did that happen? The mortgagor is the creditor of the bank. How does he suddenly become the legal debtor to the bank? The bank was offering me its conditional agreement to make an advance on the monies it would be leveraging from the, the sale of the extremely valuable security I was unknowingly gifting them and part of which the bank will be flipping back to me in the form of credit which is what was used to purchase the house but it was a it was credit that came from the deposit of the instrument that I'd gifted to the bank they weren't loaning me anything see that mortgage deed is then used to, the securitization program pro, process means that they sell on the title the true sale of the uh, of the proceeds of that, basically, which be which are sold on as guaranteed income streams, income streams to investors in mortgage-backed securities and other derivatives. And as soon as you default on that, 
they move in to to realize the asset is to steal the house off you and you know examine with strict objectivity it was a palpable act of fraud for the banker phil the banker literally arrived at the transaction with empty pockets he brought nothing and contributed nothing that he didn't obtain from me the nominal borrower yet he walked away i walked away from the transaction sorry he the bank manager walked away from the transaction as the legal creditor of me the borrower which is 180 degrees from the reality of the situation i was the creditor and any mortgagor is the creditor of the bank we then have the invoice from the this is exhibit four we have the invoice from the solicitor and it states in there exactly what i was paying him for and we now move on to device d which is wager a bet it's now clear that the standard provision and the two disclaimers in the offer and the deed of mortgage that i the nominal borrower was bound unconditionally but the alleged lender was not bound to make an advance had the effect of turning the transaction into a wager in law a gamble the larger agreement as stated in the mortgage was that in exchange for the bank's bare offer to advance i was to agree that i owed the bank 34 thousand pounds plus interest even if the bank changed its mind and didn't make the advance by way of the bait i was thus induced into making a gamble taking a wager that was immoral and against the public interest irrespective of the unscrupulous common practices of the banks the land registry and the financial ombudsman service as it was the lawyers and the judiciary who erroneously believe it to be somehow legal when in fact it's an affront to equity and unlawful under the common and ancient laws of these lands so the question is this why would any competent solicitor encourage or even allow his client to sign a document claiming to be a security but which is on its face and by express terms a wager in other words racketeering by definition now remember i was paying my friend ed for what i regarded as his in-depth professional knowledge and expertise on this matter if he had been genuine and if he had been reliable then why didn't he say to me before anything was uh, signed right mike let's just look at this the bradford and bingley are saying they agree conditionally to make the advance but they may not do so you sign that deed but whatever you do don't date it and they may or may not make the advance it's entirely up to them by the way do you know the legal definition of the word include can you not see how they are promising you sweet fa now think about this why has the bank not signed any document let alone sealed one why do you imagine they don't sign anything let alone a lawful contract with you as required by the law of property act 1989 section two it came into full effect nearly five years ago mike and the bank is ignoring it here take a look i've got a copy you do realize it's a gamble are you sure you want to take it look as your friend and as your solicitor my honest advice having applied due care and diligence which is after all what you pay me for to all the documentation is that you shouldn't touch it with a barge pole because it's a scam now 
I would argue that that would in fact have been valuable and genuine advice. That would have been the kind of advice that I would have been paying for. I, I, was, I thought I was paying for. Remember, I entered the whole deal believing that it was all somehow above, it was all legal and just and equitable. And that Ed and Phil were not scamming me. After all, you know, millions of people have these mortgages. Who would begin to believe that it was such a massive swindle that was going on? And again, there is a further poignancy to be added to this when we factor in what, as I expressed before, the levels of friendship and, and trust that existed with, with Phil and Ed um, at that time. In fact, you know, it's only recently that they have become uh, former friends of mine. I say recently, I mean over the last five years. Because once I started uh, taking on the bank over this, over the fraud, and stopped paying the mortgage, it was noticeable that those two former friends of mine became rather shifty around me and, in fact, eventually just retreated into the shadows. Thus, the execution of the deed of mortgage was a gamble and the disclaimer clause in it in and of itself meant it was not in any sense a fair one, an equitable one. As I said before, the Bradford and Bingley was in the position analogous to that of a casino owner whose croupiers, the solicitors who are duplicitously working all the while for the casino, brackets the bank, armed with the bogus legal disclaimers to the contrary, deal out mark cards from a rigged deck. The actual accounting behind the device is expressed here by Tim Madden. Quote, By putting the agreement into the form of a wager, the bank is able to nominally book or capitalise the value of the mortgage as its own property, like an entry fee, which it then flips back to the purported borrower as an award of newly created interest-bearing credit, which is the prize, directly supported by the bank's acquisition of a right of property in the mortgage itself under the pretense of security. As he also states, quote, To truly appreciate the aberrant nature of these practices, however, apply the same techniques to deposit accounts. Ask a banker if he will give you a signed receipt for a million dollar deposit and say that you will return in a day or so to actually make the deposit. Ask a banker if the bank will agree that it owes you a million dollars in exchange for your bare, nominal and non-binding agreement to deposit one million. What banks do on a purported loan is not just irregular, it's in your face criminal. Now, we then move on to the, uh, the next stage, which is a summary of the solicitor's key role in this scam and his abject professional negligence. Or, with friends like these, who needs enemies? Therefore, as forensically proven in the identification of the four devices that were operating, the fact of the mortgage, the fact the mortgage contained all four of the above illegal or demonstrably false devices, the conjuring tricks, any one of which in law made the mortgage void and unenforceable, had the effect of rendering Ed, the solicitor, and his bonding stroke insurance institution responsible for the financial losses I suffered as a consequence of entering into that invalid agreement. And therefore, in April 2013, I made the decision to begin an equitable claim against the professional indemnification insurance policy of the solicitor. Not a decision I took lightly, but 
after all I'd been through with regard to the uh, various court cases, numerous hearings, an application to the uh, Financial Ombudsman Service, various attempts with the Land Registry to have the charge knocked out, all of which failed, I was left with no other option but to go for his his bond, if you like, his professional indemnification insurance policy. Interestingly, he claimed when I asked him if he got the documentation that it had been destroyed after six years, but luckily I'd kept it. Okay, there's, there's plenty of information there about um, the fact that he, the Law Society basically put out a circle in July 1989, which pointed its members to the fact that from now on, from that point on, as of September of that year, it was a strict requirement that all contracts for the sale or other disposition of an interest in land will have to be in writing. That means it's signed by all parties. No longer would it be possible to have an oral contract evidenced in writing. It was a requirement that the signatures of all parties must be present. And from my research and the research of others, it's clear that there has not been a single valid mortgage agreement entered into by anyone with a bank in Britain at least, and probably elsewhere, since 1989. They're all null and void. And that is the enormity of the issue. 11 million mortgages in this country. It's a multi-billion pound swindle industry, which is keeping people in involuntary debt servitude. The fake debts, utterly fake. And, you know, to find out, albeit 19 years afterwards, that I'd been scammed by two friends was a, was a blow, you know, but it was, again, it's a, it was part of the awakening that had to take place in order to realise just what was going on with this. You see, some would say that at least in the days of out-and-out uh, -out slavery, it was clear that, you know, the, the plantation had to provide you with shelter, food and clothing. Nowadays, of course, the slavery is still there, but it's it's concealed. You have to pay for your. You're still slaving, still giving away a percentage of your income to the crown. All the while, and on top of that, you've got to pay for your own accommodation and living expenses. It's a very sophisticated yet utterly devious and destructive form of slavery that everyone's operating under. And of course, it's all administered through the government, which uh, is under the control of the bankers. So it was this virtually negligent professional advice, and utterly fake negligent advice that I was given from Ed that caused me into entering into the agreement, the Boyd agreement with the, with the bank and gifting them the deed of mortgage. All of, all of it was a lie, it was utterly fake. Ed's advice was utterly fake. He was um, he was a phony because he was operating simultaneously for the bank. He didn't point out the failings, the, the in-your-face failings of the the deed itself, the fact that there had to be a contract. And you know, it's um, it's clear to me now that 
all those working in the legal profession are indeed professional liars. There's nothing genuine about their advice. You know, why didn't he ask me the question? Mike, before you sign that, right, I've got to ask you, are you in fact the, the beneficial owner of the property? Because if so, then why do you want the loan? I thought you said that you wanted the loan so you could buy a house. You could buy the house. And yet you, here you are swearing under penalty of perjury that you already own it and that such ownership is already registered. What's going on? Well, what was really going on, of course, was the regularising or systemically involving the equity fraud victim as participeps criminis, partner in crime, as an estoppel of the victim's equitable rights so that the bank can trade globally in the falsified documents. In other words, by signing that agreement, I'd entered into a criminal uh, arrangement with the bank. I was a partner in crime. I'd, I'd, I'd signed a document which was on its face a lie. It was an untruth. Yeah, I'm exonerated from that, and any mortgagor is exonerated from that by the fact that if he used a conveyancing solicitor who was advising him that everything was above board and it was lawful and genuine, he was tricked. It's an act of fraud, it's fake, it's phony, it's trickery, it's deception, it's malpractice, however you want to term it. We now move on to the, the final part of this, the long-term direct consequence of his explicit negligence, of his phony advice, which led me into signing the deed and gifting it to the bank, was that the bank was able to leverage real monies from my sweat equity on the back of the mortgage deed which it had obtained from me by false representation also known as fraud so for 14 and a half years it used that agreement and the counterfeit deed of mortgage to unjustly enrich itself through the extraction of monies from my sweat equity to the value of £67,474 on a debt that as a matter of account in fact did not exist now you may well ask how come people fall for this well, is it not to do with the miseducation that we've all been subjected to? You dumb down the population, you obscure everything with a series of smoke and mirrors, so they don't really know what's going on, but the ultimate consequence is that it appears that they got the house and it appears that they were given a loan. But the reality, as we've detailed throughout this, is just the opposite. And as I state there, it's nothing less than a form of indentured slavery. We then have a situation that's looming now whereby the courts in Britain have failed to provide any remedy. They've sided with the banks who effectively control them and therefore no mortgagor is going to get any remedy through the court system, which, um, which means he may well, the best course of action is, is, I believe, right now to make a claim against the professional indemnification insurance of the solicitor who duped him into signing the mortgage deed. The way to account the losses on the, and the damages that are due is to add up all the payments, all the illegal mortgage payments that were made over the duration of the mortgage, the term of the mortgage. And in my case, I've added the value of the property which was ultimately stolen from me. And I've, I've times the, the principal, in other words, the monies that I paid them by three times in damages. So you'll see the accounting on the on the website.
in no way does it compensate me for what was effectively a violent and unlawful criminal eviction which took place on the 4th of November 2010. One which has had uh, an impact on me, the, the most principal being that I've been forced into a state of poverty uh, as a consequence of that. The conclusion and cure part. You see, what was going on ultimately with the Bradford and Bingley and with any bank with whom any mortgagor falls into arrears with is that they begin to reveal their true colours. And in fact, you will see that they are running a, a racket. The Oxford English Dictionary definition of racketeering is when an organisation engages in fraud, extortion, intimidation and violence. We've examined the fraud aspect of it. The extortion came by the ways they got uh, they got the monies out of me from my from my earnings. The intimidation came when they took me to court and they got a judge to side with them. And then the violence came when I was subjected to an unlawful eviction at the hands of David Caress, the head bailiff, and others working for Nottingham County Court. This brings us on to the subject of natural law because I've heard it even from my own family, but also from those who work in finance and or the legal system that it's somehow acceptable for other members of society to perpetuate fraud, bullying, trespass, theft and violence against others with impunity, providing that some act of parliament or some written document gives them permission to do that which is utterly, utterly fallacious. And it's from these fallacious notions that you hear such phrases as the banks are too big to fail, they're above the law, and it's also uh, it's cited as the reason why bail-ins and bail-outs are, are deemed legal, when in fact they're utterly criminal. You see, we're dealing with a lack of morality here. These people, many of whom are operating in a psychopathic and or satanic system, simply do not know the difference between right and wrong. It's the kind of attitude that pervades whereby, um, to quote Louise Power, who's a solicitor working for a particularly pernicious set of um, banksters' moles, known as Walker Morris, it's the sort of attitude that engenders the motto, by any means necessary. She takes the view that whatever it takes, to get the mortgagors, to get the people out of their houses and the bank uh, in a position whereby it can steal and sell the property, by any means, whatever it takes is acceptable to her, which, as far as I'm concerned, is totally and utterly immoral. Because the fact is that in equity and at law, as far as I'm concerned, everyone owns their house free and clear. But of course, we're all labouring under this ridiculous system of feudalism where, which is no more um, aggressive and pernicious than in the than in these you know the jurisdiction known as the United Kingdom, the Isles of Britain, from which it all originated and spread around the world through the empire, into North America, into Canada, New Zealand, Australia, the world over. So what happened was I made a I've made a claim against the uh, insurance policy of the of Ed the solicitor, which is uh, currently still uh, active. I'm not going to go into any detail about that. I'm just going to draw 
the uh, the whole thing to a conclusion. Now, I'd like to thank you all for listening, and I'd also once again like to reiterate the good, excellent work that has has been carried out by Michael Benicia, by by Tim Madden, by Cy Spaniard, and all those great people with whom I've been working alongside on the uh, in the group loosely known as the Banks the Busters, and of course. Um, you know the fight goes on. This is a yoke around our necks that we've got to we've got to get rid of. And uh, as as Mark Passio states, the only way that we're going to be free is is when that time the time comes that we do away with government with any acceptance of external control over other people. It's all phony. It's all fake. The bottom line is nobody owes the banks a single penny, and anyone who tells you otherwise is a liar. Okay, that's the end of uh, the first podcast. Thank you for your attention. I hope this has served to clear up some of the matters arising from the mortgage scam. And uh, if you've got any questions or you wish to contact me, then please do so through the website uh, or my email address, which is roguemail at thinkfree.org.uk. There's a donations button there, so if you feel that my work and the experiences I've been through whereby I've been sent into a state of penury is is valued by yourself, then please, by all means, make a donation through the uh, through the, the PayPal button there. And I look forward to speaking with you in the uh, in the next podcast. Thank you very much for your time, and good night, uh, good day, and goodbye.